Welcome to Scientific American Science Talk, posted on July 21st, 2019. I'm Steve Mursky. And while much of the lower 48 is sweltering, things are somewhat cooler in Alaska. Not as cool as they should be. But anyway, back in January, we brought you part one of a report from the ice fields near Juneau. Part two is coming right up. But I'm going to play part one again first for anyone who missed it or just wants to get a refresher. And the beauty of podcasts is if you want to jump ahead to part two, just skip the next 10 minutes. Elizabeth Case is a graduate student studying glaciology at the Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory, part of Columbia University's Earth Institute. In the summer of 2018, she headed out onto the ice fields near Juneau, along with her mentor, Columbia Earth scientist Johnny Kingslake, as part of the Juneau Icefield Research Program, or JERP. She brought her trusty recorder and sent back audio. You'll hear her mention Seth Campbell. He's at the University of Maine and is the director of JERP. She also brings up Bradley Markle, who's a postdoc at Caltech, and Wilson Clayton, formerly an environmental engineer and visiting faculty member at JERP. Here's part one of her story of doing science on the ice, on the ice. The helicopter takes off from the granite helipad, swaying slightly. In a flash of yellow, it spins around camp and dives nose first down the Von Lewis Icefall, a kilometer wide expanse of ice shattered into blue edged blocks by a precipitous 1,500 foot drop to the Gilkey Trench. Ogives, these bands of chevron like embroidery, recede down the trench, tracing the route back to Juneau. The mountains quickly absorb the helicopter's roar, leaving the three of us, me, my advisor, Johnny Kingslake. Good example of a day in the life of the nurse scientist. And the program director, Seth Campbell, in the bright heat of the subarctic sun on a Nunatak in the middle of the Juneau ice field. Tucked into southernmost Alaska, the ice field is the size of Rhode Island. Its glaciers and coastline were famously chronicled by John Muir in Travels in Alaska. The capital city runs up the edge of sharply angled, lushly vegetated mountains, which hold back the ice field even as it spills out through valleys and over ridges in searching tongues of white, blue, and gray. The Taku, the Mendenhall, and Lemon Creek, to name a few of them. Our last morning in Juneau, I woke before seven, which, in Alaska in the summer, is well after dawn. We packed our gear into the back of a blue 15-passenger van. In went three clanking canvas bags with coring equipment, one mini-fridge-sized box with a sidewinder drill, a flat blue case with our antennas, three stocky zaggy boxes with tools and radar equipment, one generator, one drone, two large duffel bags and two backpacks, and one small black box for Seth. A little while later, we walked out of the hangar and climbed into a yellow helicopter, already packed full with our gear and some food. Then we were off, flying over Juneau, floating over the Mendenhall's corrugated surface, and out of the horizon, the ice field grew, 
unfurling magnificently in front of us. We chose this ice field because of its accessibility. The Juno Ice Field Research Program has run an eight-week ice traverse for high school, college, and postgraduate students for the last 70 years. So some 30 camps in varying condition dot the ice field from the Alaskan coast to Atlan, Canada. Juno Ice Field, Camp 18. Mountain peaks poking out through the glaciers. We're looking down on an outlet glacier with these black, these dark and white bands called ogives. Camp 18 was the closest to our research site, with five main buildings, a wood shed, a fuel shed, and two outhouses. These were built by past staff and students. Two-by-fours and thin wooden planks form the structure inside. Anywhere that isn't otherwise used is a bed. Above the garage, inside the work shed, wedged over the lecture room. Anything that is more expensive to fly off the ice than to store here has been left behind. So the place is a time capsule of generations of emergent adventurers. With the helicopter gone, Seth, Johnny, and I unlock the buildings, air out the dorms, and set up a water supply where the snow naturally melts and pools. On occasion, we can hear the ice fall as it shifts under its own weight, moving a meter or two a day. Other than that, it is silent. Not an oppressive silence, but an expansive one. One that, in fact, reminds you of the hugeness of the earth, of its permanence and wildness. Though we're surrounded by ice, the day is unexpectedly hot, and we change into shorts and shirts while we work. The next two weeks will be one of the longest stretches of sunny weather in Jerp's living memory. There are wildfires burning in Canada, and a haze washes into the sky. Every so often, while opening camp, I'm caught dead. There is no sense of scale up here. The icefall looks just a football field across, but everything is bigger than I can imagine. We're not alone up there for long. The students arrive that afternoon, and more ski in the next day. They are effusive, energetic, loud, dressed in Patagonia pullovers and Hawaiian shirts and Crocs, and the camp breathes into life. Johnny and I are busy getting everything ready. Like many endeavors, most of science is preparation. We've been testing equipment, purchasing equipment, prepping and packing equipment, Skyping, calling, emailing, texting, rooting, and scheming for months. Sunday, we spend the morning taking inventory of our gear, shipping it off on sleds pulled by skidoos to the field camp location, and sawing 160 bamboo stakes in half to mark the 108 points of a GPS grid and 91 points of our radar grid. Our survey is trying to capture the ice flow of the ice divide at the top of the ice field. That's a lot of ice. Like it sounds, an ideal ice divide splits the flow of the ice. It has an imperceptibly narrow ridge, and the snow that falls either flows out one side or the other, except at the very center, where, in theory, it becomes infinitely old as it is compressed towards the bed. These places are ideal for ice cores. One thing, um, if, the, if that ice divide has stayed stationary for long enough, you know that that ice, any ice you extract in an ice core, you're trying to get a climate history from, it hasn't, it's been laid down in the same spot. So there's ice cores drilled all over the place. A lot of them are ice, ice divides or near them. Of course, the world is complex and it's far from ideal. And the location we're working on isn't actually a divide, it's a saddle. 
So we have some ice flowing in from the accumulation on the surrounding valley walls, and this ice and the snow that falls directly on top of the divide slowly pours out three outlet glaciers. We have an array of tools with us to try to understand the ice field. A GPS survey run by Scott McGee of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service will measure the location of the stakes before and after the short field season to get a surface velocity, which is how much the ice is moving and in what direction. Bradley Markle is collecting snow isotope samples. Wilson Clayton will measure the meltwater percolation through the snow as well as the surface energy balance. That's how much energy is coming in, say, from the sun, and how much is leaving. Seth, a professor at the University of Maine, will drive a deep-looking radar over the grid to get an idea of how thick the ice is and a shallow radar to look just at the top 20 or 30 meters. Johnny and I are there to use a third type of radar, called an autonomous, phase-sensitive radio echo sounder. It measures the difference in location of ice stratigraphy over time, and it can look at both shallow and deep ice processes. The stratigraphy comes from the annual weather cycle. Each year, a new layer of snow is laid down in winter storms and melted out in the summer. Additionally, snow that's melted may pool and refreeze in distinct layers called ice lenses. Both of these processes create layers in the snowpack with unique dielectric signatures, which is what we see using our radar. We're interested in how much these vertical layers move downward towards the bed over time, because it tells us something about how the ice is flowing and deforming. We'll collect this information by precisely measuring the change in the depth of these layers between our first grid run and our second. So... As you can see, there's a lot of science to do, and we have just 10 days. On Monday, we have what Johnny calls the typical, quote, day of a scientist. Lecture in the morning, learn to ski in the afternoon. The ski out is gentle, slightly uphill, past the storm range and onto the divide. After two or three hours of sliding along the wet snow, a black dot appears on a plane of white our gear stash. It's just a kilometer away or so. And then we've arrived. And now here's part two. Camp that night is four tents. Our kitchen, a two-burner stove perched on the drilling equipment. But at full capacity, it will consist of six sleeping tents, one cook tent, a bathroom pit, and a water station where we melt snow for drink water. So today we've been drilling a nice core. It had some problems with generators, so it meant that what was supposed to be me- mechanized was actually student driven, student power. <laughs> but it worked quite well, we got to 10 meters 98. And uh, let's go have a look. Oh, we're all right. Uh, we're at our drill site. We have a shallow pit where the students processed each of the cores that we dug out. Um, we did 12, 13 runs today where we, we've got our two meter drill barrel that goes, that we, uh, wind into the snow and, um, attach it. these long metal extensions to it and slowly wind it down. Have to be really careful that we don't drop them in this enormous hole that goes dark, maybe a meter down. It's like white and then blue and then 
totally pitch black. We're um, collecting samples for uh, some isotope work and then also for an artist who might use these in a future installation. Yeah. Now we reach a place where we've, uh, every night we've been setting up our radar, which is this, uh, we've got this little yellow box here, um, which I'm opening up now. And uh, it's silently ticking away every 10 minutes, taking a measurement of the stratigraphy of the snow and ice beneath us. And uh, the antennas are laid out seven meters apart. And through the day, they've had so much melting here, they've actually been, they've been tipping over <laughs> and possibly affecting our data in adverse ways. So every time we uh, reset the thing, we have to put them back up to be horizontal and parallel to each other and in the right place. It's pretty much the whole camp. We've got one skidoo and then all of the rest of our gear, gasoline, tanks, some food, sets radar set up. A water <sighs> collecting place where yeah. water's like on the top and it's melting down and collecting in a big plastic box. We've got a big cook kitchen, yeah. tent. The green tent. We've um, cook with a two burner propane stove. The only thing we have left is uh, are the bathroom pits, of course, which have really melted out pretty substantially. Some 20 students and staff will cycle through the camp with us over the next 10 days. We'll end up digging out two more cook tent sites, which are just 10 or 12 foot diameter holes about three feet deep with a bench and a center snow stand to hold the tent up. We'll also shovel out three more bathroom pits, which are just three to five foot holes that are like a hundred yards from the tents that we bury our waste into. In case you're wondering, this is how you use the restroom on the ice field. Invariably, you need to pee in the middle of the night. Unzip the tent, pull on your boots, marvel at the sunrise. The snow crunches firmly under your boots. Pull down all the pairs of pants you're wearing, pee facing the sun. At least the view is good. Walk back to your tent, unzip it, take off all your layers, crawl back into your bags, and knock out. The first full day at the Divide, we check our radar data taken overnight. It looks good, and we can definitely see something, some layers, some response. The first group of students and staff arrive after breakfast, and we start the radar survey. Andrew Halliday, a staffer, and Johnny sit on the skidoo, and a student and I are on a sled pulled behind, holding the radar in our laps with an antenna on either side. Each stop, Johnny finds the southern antenna's location with a handheld GPS and marks it with a bamboo pole. I stand up with a radar, a laptop, and a 12-volt battery, while Johnny and the student position the antenna and Andrew drives the skidoo a ways away to avoid creating any electromagnetic noise. Each measurement takes exactly 200 seconds. The next day is much the same. Stand up with the gear, drop the gear, screw in the cables, test the radar, take the data, unscrew the cables, load up, skidoo on. The work is repetitive but satisfyingly steady. We start after breakfast and finish the rest of the grid at 9 p.m., returning to the cook tent victorious, bundled, and hungry, our cheeks and noses rosy from the day's bright sun and the evening's cold. 
Thursday, we start on the ice cores, which are used to give us an idea of the density profile of the snow as it slowly turns into ice. A two-meter core barrel, which is a plexiglass cylinder wrapped with thick orange rubber threads, is used to cut into the snow as we turn it by hand. After the first section is taken out, we attach thin metal extensions and a handle on top to cut deeper down the borehole. For each section, we record its length, diameter, weight, temperature, snow grain size, and the location of meltwater ice lenses. Around 6 or 7 meters, we try to switch over to the sidewinder drill, which is used both to cut down into the borehole and winch up the heavy core and extensions. We plug the drill into the generator that we brought, but no matter what we do, it won't start. It's our first setback, and we're a little worried, because we really need to reach the ice to know the full density profile, and we're definitely not there yet. We probably can't make it to 20 meters by hand, or the going will be slow and difficult, and we won't get all three cores done. With the students gone, it's just me, Seth, and Johnny, again in the silence at the top of the world. This evening is my favorite of all the nights, as a full moon rises up through the sunset. The colors, tangerines, aubergines, deep navy, mellow greens, expansive blues, fade imperceptibly into each other, and the shadow of the earth is visible as a dark curve thrown from one mountain to another, a fifth or more of the horizon. The radio buzzes from Camp 18, and we get some good news. The generator was just filled with the wrong fuel, and the mechanic can drain it and send it back out tomorrow, and we'll start up again on the core in the morning. Over the next few days, we'll finish the first core and drill two more, as well as some shorter cores, where Seth's shallow radar showed something unusual, a lack of definedness in the stratigraphy, a washing out of those annual layers. Johnny and a few students drill at this spot and find a wet, bubbling aquifer, Hold your ear to the hole, and you can hear a burbling creek trickling through a forest. Johnny drops a ball of snow down the hole, and it makes an audible splash. We found ourselves a fern aquifer, and we're all really excited. These are phenomena most famously found in Greenland, where a huge amount of water sits below the surface of the snow. Our aquifer seems to be contained between two thick ice lenses and perhaps indicates a pattern that is repeated year after year. Ice lens, water-saturated fern. Ice lens, water-saturated fern. Ice lens. But it's hard to know. Still, it's very curious to have found so much water in a landscape of so much snow and ice. The last day of coring, we ripped the threads off the sides of both the long and short core barrels. We made it 16 meters into the last borehole, but that's the end of it. The equipment is in too dire a shape to continue. That afternoon, our eighth day, is our first real break. I crawl into my tent to escape the sun, my cheeks and face hot. I read for four or five hours until dinner, another magnificent sunset, and a glorious, clear, moonlit night. Over the 11 days we're there, we see the ice field change dramatically. Narrow cracks appear and widen on the surface of the divide. Snow melts out and reveals blue ice. And bergschrens, the crevasses between snow and flowing ice on the valley walls around us, gape and grow. Though it appears static at any moment, I'm surprised by just how dynamic the ice field proves to be. 
Our luck with the weather holds until the last 24 hours when low, dense, wet clouds roll in from the coast and blanket the ice field. The wind picks up and the world turns whiter, and eventually we can't even see from our tents to the bathroom pit. Our final day of measurements is a test of our stamina. Some 40 or 50 points, visibility cut to 30 meters, maybe less. The weather brings in dust, and the white snow turns a spotty brown, and the color of the sky is the same as the color in front and behind, which is the same as the color of the ground. We wrap up around 3 in the afternoon, and then, with an inevitable suddenness, our field season is done. We pack up the cook tent and our personal tents, share a last hot drink, and then all that's left of our camp are some big holes and little snow tent platforms, and we ride through the whiteout to Camp 18 for wooden bunks, dry clothes, and a hot meal. In truth, field season is just the beginning. We collected a huge amount of data about this ice divide. Shallow and deep radar, phase-sensitive radar, surface velocities, ice core, meltwater flow, isotopes, and surface ablation. When we get back, we'll spend months synthesizing this data, trying to understand the complex flow of the ice, the densification of the fern, the interference between water and our measurements, and likely other questions that we haven't even considered yet. And this past week, just before she headed out onto the ice again, I spoke to Elizabeth Case about last year and the plans for this trip. So tell me, what are the plans for this summer's fieldwork versus last summer? Yeah, so last summer while we were up there, it was a really warm, uh, wet summer on the ice field. So last summer we were looking at how the ice moves at the top of the Juno ice field. So we were taking strain rates and we were trying to measure how quickly ice was flowing. Um, And we were using a particular kind of radar that needed to know the density of the old snow below the radar in order to be able to get accurate measurements. Um, So we had a fern uh, fern core up there, which is basically a plastic tube with some sharp metal pieces at the bottom and you basically drill into the surface of the ice and you pull out samples and you take the density of those samples. You measure that. Um, And while we were taking some of these samples, we found that uh, some of them were really waterlogged. So you took this core up from five meters, so 15 feet or 20 feet or 30 feet below the surface of the ice. um, And it was water falling out of the ice core. I mean, there was just a ton of water um, at some of the locations uh, at the top. And this is what's known, we think, as a as a fern aquifer. So a lot of uh, temperate um, glaciers. So these are glaciers that aren't, um, that are mostly around zero degrees, um, have these sort of like water tables, like a groundwater table um, in the snow. And so we found all this water and we used a shallow radar uh, to kind of map the full extent of this aquifer. And this year we're going to be going back and trying to measure the rate of flow through that aquifer and uh, see how well that matches up with some surface measurements of how much the ice field is melting this summer. And this summer has been, uh, I think, their hottest year on record. Um, So once again... um, the students who are on this program that we're working with, the Juno Icefield Research Program, 
have had to accelerate their traverse across the ice field by two weeks because so much snow is melting out that it starts to be unsafe. It does take time for the temperatures at the top to sort of make its way down into the ice. So you're not going to see it all like melt immediately because water has a super high heat capacity. So it takes a lot to transition it from ice into water. Um, But these are definitely the most vulnerable glaciers. It's going to be an interesting summer up there. There's going to be a lot of water, but it'll be a good time. That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where we've got a shipload of space stories on the site to celebrate the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11. And follow us on Twitter, where you get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. 